Scripture reading this morning is found in in Luke chapter 7. My message is going to be focused on stories of mercy. And this particular passage shows a woman who found mercy and the love that she had for Christ. So I want to invite you, whether you use a paper Bible or your phone, find Luke chapter 7. I'm going to be beginning in verse 36. Follow along with me as I read. One of the Pharisees asked him, asked Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. And then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. In 1974, Marvin Olasky was a student at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. And uh, he was a proud member of the Communist Party. In fact, not just a proud member of the Communist Party, uh, he was on mission to recruit radicals and to try to sow seeds of domestic terrorism. And he was proud of it. Uh, He was not the kind of Marxist that just hoped in a peaceful transition of power. He believed that that was impossible. And so he believed that political revolution had to happen through violence and he intended to incite violence. And while he was studying Marxism, it it almost had the devotion that someone who is a serious follower of Jesus would have to doing daily devotions in the Word. He was loving reading Stalin and the other founders of different communist movements around the world, and he was reading a book by Joseph Stalin that he had read before, And Stalin was talking about how it was absolutely critical that all religion, regardless of what type of religion it was, be eradicated as you moved your culture to embrace Marxism. This was not the first time he had read that. It was not the first time that he had thought about it. 
But as he was reading, he said something happened to him that had never happened in his life. And he clarified, he said, I'd never done any type of drugs at all. I had never experienced any sort of different altered state of consciousness. But as he sat at his desk reading Stalin, he was arrested by this thought. What if Stalin is wrong? What if God is not the opiate of the masses like Marx said? What if God is the almighty creator? What if there is a God and the most evil thing that you could do would be to eradicate the worship of God. And he said for the first time in his life, he said he he never sat still, ever. He loved to move around while he read, and for the first time in his life, he could not move. And he had a type of vision where he said he knew that there was light and that he had closed it out of his life willingly. And he could not move for eight hours. From three o'clock in the afternoon to 11 o'clock in the evening, he sat still at his chair with light that he was conscious of and aware of, unable to move and unable to do anything. And when he rose at 11 o'clock that night, he realized, I'm wrong. There is a God. And he didn't know who it was. But he understood that he had to change his life. Marvin confessed he was a slow learner. He loved academic rigor and scholarship. And so before he did anything else, he turned to the sort of academic Christian that embraced existentialism. He said, if I'm going to have to be open to God, I'm going to find something that I can respect. And so he turned to read Christian authors who in many ways are not Christian. And I say that because they deny the resurrection of Jesus. You can't deny the resurrection of Jesus and be a Christian. You call yourself one, doesn't make you one. Our hope is in the literal resurrection of Jesus. And so the, the authors that he was reading, he found interesting, and he respected them academically. He said they understood philosophy. But what troubled him most was how they talked about the resurrection. And he said, I I don't care if this is an interesting philosophy that governs your life. He had already found that in Marxism and loved it. He said, what I care deeply about is whether or not Jesus rose from the dead and what that means. And so over the course of about three years, he began to read the New Testament. In fact, he read it in Russian because he was learning Russian. Russian was not his native language. And so he was working through different books to help him improve his Russian literacy. And he finally read the New Testament. And he was struck by who Jesus is. And by the historical nature of the Gospels. That they're not fairy tales. But they describe things as they actually happened. And so after three years of wrestling and searching Marvin came to Jesus Christ and admitted his sins of pride and his rejection of God. And he found grace and he found mercy and he found peace. And I want to tell you that story because it's a modern parallel of someone like the Apostle Paul. We're in 1 Timothy this morning. Paul has written this letter, he says to Timothy, so that Timothy knows how to conduct himself 
in God's household so that he knows what a church is and what a church does. And what I want to celebrate and preach this morning is that a church proclaims the gospel of mercy. That's our mission. That's our number one job. We proclaim the mercy of God. We celebrate the mercy of God. And when Paul tells his own story, he says, I was a hard-hearted, in many ways, terrorist. The church would have thought of him that way. And God stopped him in his tracks, changed his life in an instant. And he went from being someone who not only did not believe in Jesus, Paul persecuted those who did believe in Jesus. And in that moment, he went from being a persecutor of the church to a believer in Jesus Christ. Friends, my main point for the message today is I want to ask you, have you ever experienced mercy like that? As you think about who God is and who you are, have you ever experienced his forgiveness for your sins? And and maybe as you think about who God is and who you are, you don't feel like you're worthy of his grace and of his affection. I've had people say that to me. You know, I I just, I don't know if I can come to church. I just, I just don't feel worthy. Well, I've got good news. That's why mercy exists because no one is worthy. Paul said that the God who saved him, saved him in particular to give hope to people who didn't feel worthy. And so my first point this morning is to show you God's mercy in Paul's ministry. God's mercy in Paul's ministry. And we'll point you to verse 12 of 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, it begins with praise. And Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Friends, when somebody shows you mercy, it moves your heart to thankfulness. And Paul begins this short passage we're looking at this morning Thanking God that he gave him a mission and a ministry, that he serves the Lord in the strength that the Lord provides. Paul never points to himself as someone who has his own strength. In fact, very often, he says, when I'm weak, I'm strong. At the beginning of the letter to the Corinthians, the second letter to the Corinthians, He says to a church, I want you to know that I almost despaired of life itself. But this was to teach me to depend on the God who raises the dead. And at the end of that letter, he says, he asked God to remove one of his deepest pains. And God told him no. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul is not angry at the things that God allowed into his life. He doesn't question the goodness of God. He gives thanks that God poured out mercy on him and that God not only forgave him, but gave him a mission to tell the world about the mercy that he had tasted and experienced firsthand. 
So my first point today is Paul's mercy in ministry, the mercy he experienced, it's, it's God's mercy, but the mercy he experienced in ministry. My second point is the mercy that he experienced in pardon. The mercy that he experienced in pardon. Look at verses 13 and 14. Paul says, he wasn't appointed because he had a great resume. He says, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Friends, let's pause for a moment and think about what blasphemy is so that we can understand why Paul has an incredibly powerful testimony. I, I threw this question out on Facebook just to, just to get a sense of where people were at and, and what they thought. It, blasphemy, it's, it's a word that if we use it at all, we use it as a joke. And a lot of people don't even use it as a joke because it's not, not thought of very much at all. But if you read through the Bible... The Bible uses the term blasphemy to talk about those who specifically speak against God Almighty. The word really means something like gossip, but it's not gossip around other people. It's actually saying untrue things about the person who matters more than anyone else. You can read about it in Leviticus 24. And get a sense for how serious it is when a young man uses the name of God as a curse in the middle of a fight. And it's the first time the people of God are like, we are God's people. They're still at Mount Sinai. They're, they're learning God's ways. They're learning his laws. And, and this fight breaks out. And this man uses the name of God as a curse. And they don't even know what to do. Because God hasn't given them the penalties and the standards for what happens when someone breaks the law like that. And so they have this emergency meeting. And Moses goes to talk to God and says, what do we do? And God says, stone him. And they do. They take him out of the camp. And they execute him. Blasphemy to us seems like a small, insignificant offense. We value freedom of speech. You can say anything you want, right? And yet blasphemy, speaking against God, the holiest, purest, most perfect person there is, is eternally serious. So when Paul says that he was a blasphemer, it's not an insignificant, small thing. If anything, he's confessing, if God had dealt with me as I deserved, I should have been taken out of town and stoned. He's saying, I committed one of the most serious sins in all of the Old Testament. You can read blasphemy throughout the Old Testament. It's committed in different ways. It's not always using the name of God as a curse. But here's how I would define it biblically. Blasphemy is rejecting the glory of God for yourself. That might seem like a strange way to define it, but it is saying, I hear what you're saying about who you are, God, and I think it's all a bunch of hogwash. It's rejecting the glory of God for yourself. When you do that, you are rejecting the life that God has offered for you. And not only is it a private, personal rejecting of the glory of God for yourself, it's poisoning the waterhole for other people. Because blasphemy is not private, it's public. 
You spread to other people your opinion about who God is. And so you not only reject God's glory for yourself, you not only reject his salvation and his grace, but you teach others to reject the grace that God is offering them. And so you cut others off from the life and forgiveness that God freely offers. And so in many ways, you become a murderer because you teach people to turn away from the only source of life in the universe. You can think of it as breaking the greatest commandments in all of the Bible. You guys remember the young man that comes to Jesus and says, you know, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says to him, oh, the greatest commandment is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, you love your neighbor as yourself. Well, when you commit blasphemy, you break both of those at the same time because you fail to love God and you teach other people to also not love God. So you're not loving your neighbor either. And this is who Paul was. In the Old Testament, this was punishable by death. In fact, in the New Testament, you see Jesus is accused of it. You can read about it in John's Gospel. The people that accuse him of it want to execute him because, as we saw today, in that passage in Luke, they ask, how can this man forgive sins? And they're wondering, if he's just a man, how does he have this right? But they don't condemn him yet. In John's gospel, they condemn him because they say, you who are a man have made yourself equal with God. And Jesus doesn't for a second say, oh, no, 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 no. That's not what I meant. He owns it. He did make himself equal with God. He is the son of the father, equal in glory. And Jesus does not commit blasphemy because what he says is true. But Paul commits blasphemy specifically by rejecting Jesus Christ. And that matters enormously. It matters for our understanding of the word of God and who Jesus is. It matters today. Because many people would say, you know, I'm a good person and I just, I don't know what's true and and God's going to sort it all out in the end. And friends, you cannot do that with Jesus Christ. He either is the Lord of the universe, the savior of the world, Or he is a liar and a fraud. You can't have any middle ground about Jesus Christ. And I want to point you to the Apostle Paul's story to prove that this is what the Bible teaches. You can read Paul's biography. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, I preached his story. You can go back and listen to that message you want. You can read about it in the book of Acts. Paul loves to tell his story because he loves to give hope to other people. He says, look, if God saved me, he can save you. Paul was not some fanatical Satanist. He was not some atheist. He described himself as an enormously religious person. Say, hey, do you worship God? He would say, absolutely, every day. He kept Sabbath. He never missed a Sabbath. He knew the word of God backwards and forwards and could quote it. Paul was a man that was devoted to, to his faith and his religion. And yet, for all his devotion, he did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And in fact, 
he taught others to deny that Jesus was the Messiah. And so his goodness, his ability to keep the Ten Commandments, to worship God faithfully, to never steal, to never commit adultery, to never covet, and in fact, to positively do all the things he was supposed to do, to work hard and to be generous. All of his goodness did not matter because he rejected Jesus as the Messiah and he taught other people to turn away from Jesus. He never would have blasphemed the way that young man did in Leviticus 24. He never would have used God's name as a curse. He was a follower of the Old Testament. And so his blasphemy had nothing to do with a failure to keep the law of the Old Testament. His blasphemy had everything to do with rejecting Jesus and teaching others to do the same. And so Paul's sin is against Jesus uniquely. Which, if he's committing blasphemy, means that Paul believes Jesus is the Son of God, equal with the Father in essence and glory. Paul describes his sin this way, Acts 26, verse 11. He says, I punished them, I punished followers of Jesus, often in all the synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme. How do you make a Christian blaspheme? You get them to deny that Jesus is the Savior. That was his goal. Paul says, I punished them often in the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. He wasn't content to just try to drive them out of Israel. He wanted to visit other places and prevent the worship of Jesus everywhere it happened. And yet Jesus, the one he was sinning against, had mercy on him. Jesus loved him even while he was raging against the church. You can read a story in the book of Acts about how Paul is complicit in the murder of Stephen. Stephen's a great church member. He's passionate about making sure that widows get fed. He's active in food ministry. He's the guy that you'd be like, man, we're so glad Stephen's a member of our church. He loves the Lord Jesus. He loves talking about Jesus. And Paul is complicit in his murder. Paul carried that with him for his entire life. That he persecuted the church of God and tried to get people to turn away from Jesus until the mercy of Jesus broke through in his life and pardoned him completely. Look at those verses again. He says he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. But, he says, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And I want to pause before we go to the next point. Because here's what happened. In many ways, Paul was not ignorant. He knew who Jesus claimed to be. And he knew who Christians thought Jesus was. So he's not ignorant of the content of it. But his heart had never been open to the possibility that it was true. The Holy Spirit had not drawn him yet. In the Bible, there's one sin 
that's unforgivable. Jesus teaches, it's, it's called blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's when the Holy Spirit is telling you to believe in Jesus, and you shut him out of your life, and you say no. And a failure to believe that Jesus is the Son of God is unforgivable. You'll never be forgiven for your sins if you reject Jesus as your Savior. And at this point in Paul's life, he's known the content of the gospel, but the Holy Spirit hasn't opened his eyes. And you can read how the Holy Spirit does open his eyes, and he does believe in Jesus fully and completely and embraces the forgiveness of sins that Jesus offers. And as a saved follower of Jesus, whom he had formerly hated and persecuted, Jesus doesn't just save him. He gives him a job. And so there's not only mercy in the pardon that Paul received, but there's mercy in the message he proclaims. So look at verses 15 and 16 with me. Paul says, excuse me, starting verse 14. It says, And the grace of our Lord overflowed with me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He was assured that it was true, and he was full of the love of God for him. And then verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, As the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. There's mercy in this message. If you are one of those people that says, man, I just feel like I'm not worthy to be in church. I I just feel like I'm not worthy of God's grace. I've got a message for you from the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul would say, friend, I'm worse than you are. Come on in. Paul's message is that he was the worst sinner. And that if God extended mercy to him, he will extend it to you. You can have the assurance that your sins, whatever they are, are wiped clean and washed away. And that not only is the message of the gospel true, but that God will fill you with his love for you. See, Christianity is not just a set of mathematical statements that you're trying to figure out, is this true or false? Christianity is a life change that fills you with the knowledge of God's love for you that cannot be shaken. Paul doesn't describe his change as just a change of opinion. He says that the mercy of God overflowed with him, not only with faith, not only with belief, but also with love. That he was so confident that God loved him that he was able to love other people and to loudly preach the message of mercy that he had received. Friends, not only is there mercy in the mission and ministry, not only is there mercy in the pardon and mercy in the message, this mercy motivates praise. And before we read these verses, I just want to say for a second, it's so easy as a Christian, to kind of lose your joy. 
There are so many things that, that can rob you of your joy. And, and so one of the hardest things sometimes is just coming to church because you know you're going to sing songs that are kind of happy a lot of times. And so if, you, if your heart is in a minor key and all the songs are major, if you're feeling sad and everyone around you has a smile, you struggle to worship the Lord Jesus. And if that's true of your experience, and, and I will say very honestly, that is true of my experience more often than I want to let on. If that's true of our experience, this is medicinal mercy. This is medicinal mercy. Because what mercy does when you receive it is it motivates praise. So look at what happens after Paul has described how Jesus called him and set him apart for ministry and how Jesus saved him. Look at what he does. This is maybe the most important verse of our passage. Maybe. I, I, I don't know. Verse 17. Look at how he just explodes in praise. He says, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Notice all those words that Paul uses to describe God, and he says he's the only God. This is why we preach the only way to be saved is through Jesus Christ, because there is no other way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And Paul, when he has his eyes open and he believes that's totally true, and he confesses his own sin and finds the mercy of God. His heart is moved from anger and hatred to overflowing joy. Friends, that's only possible when you realize who Jesus is and what he's done for you. And so I've got a couple of stories for you as we, as we end this message. Because I believe stories of mercy can move your heart to praise God. If you are already a believer today, you have a story of God's mercy. You remember how God loved you in a time you felt unlovable, how God forgave you in a time when you felt guilty. And remembering his mercy for you helps lift your heart in praise. But hearing stories of how he's done it for other people, and, and honestly, one of the hardest things in my week in getting ready for this message was choosing what stories to share, because there are hundreds like this, and so I had to leave so many out. I'm just going to give you a few, but my goal in sharing different stories, I know none of you are radical Marxists this morning, right? So the story I shared at the beginning of this message, it's interesting it lets you know that God does miracles and opens the eyes of the blind, but you might be like, you know, I'm nothing like that guy. My hope in sharing these stories, you're going to hear somebody like you and be encouraged with how Jesus had mercy on someone, not just 2,000 years ago in the Bible, but today. You can think of stories of people in our church, people you might know or people I hope you'll get to know. People like Scott Smith, uh, Scott, I talked to him Wednesday. I never do this without double checking. Uh, Scott was enslaved to drugs as somebody who described himself as a believer, came to Christ as a young kid, but then kind of walked away in high school. And Scott heard the voice of the Holy Spirit telling him what to do and how to forsake the drugs that he was a slave to. He said, I tried to quit over and over and over and over again, and, and I was sure that I was never going to go back to it. And then I would again and again and again. And he heard the voice of the Holy Spirit in his life telling him what to do. And when he obeyed, he found power and freedom that he had never experienced. 
Scott, I know you haven't walked with the Lord perfectly ever since, but the Lord has never left you. And not only Scott, we could tell stories, some of them, in fact, I was talking to a guy this week, he's like, man, my story's just boring. And it was. (laughs) And yet it's not. He says, I was a little kid in church, I heard about Jesus and I believed, that's it. You know, I, I didn't have like this, you know, I was a Marxist, I was a drug addict. There was never any of that. But you know what's still true? He was a sinner headed to hell apart from the grace of God, and Jesus broke into his life and offered him forgiveness and salvation, and he said yes. He said, man, when I was baptized, I was baptized because my brothers were being baptized at the same time, and my mom was like, I want all my boys baptized at the same time. She says, like, I really wrestled. Like, did I do that for the right reason? You know what he said to me? By the way, I, I, uh, Rob Finkel, that's who I'm talking about. Many of you guys know him. He said, I know that I know Jesus, and I know that Jesus is my Savior. And so he's a story of mercy that encourages other people. Rob loves to invite people to know Jesus Christ. You tell stories I've mentioned in the past, people like Sue Lambert. I talked to Debbie Morse this week, Dave Paget. Dave, I probably didn't check with you. I'm not going to say anything else. Just uh, Virginia Martin, Virgil Long, like Gail Carpenter, Dave Goodrich. These are the stories of the people in our church. And if you know the Lord Jesus, we all have a similar story that says, I received mercy. And it's the same story that has been told again and again and again. That Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. And I want to ask you, do you have a story like that? Do you know Jesus as your Savior? Do you feel the Holy Spirit tugging in your heart right now? Because if you can't say that you know Him, I believe He's calling you to confess your sins and to be saved, to be baptized, to identify with his death for you and the life that he offers you. And if you're wrestling with that and you don't know, is that for me? I want to describe some people that maybe are just like you. John Joseph told his testimony at the back of Christianity Today. He's a member of the Coast Guard. And as a military guy, he did a lot of stuff right You'd be able to say he's a disciplined man, strong in many ways. Yet he knew that he needed God because as strong as he was in some ways and as disciplined as he was in some ways, he was an alcoholic and he could not change no matter how hard he tried. And God for years had brought Christians into his life to tell him about Jesus and he listened a little He would go to church and say, you know, I'm I'm trying this Christianity thing. I'm singing the songs. I'm, I'm reading this stuff. And yet he really thought that he could just clean himself up by his own willpower. He's a strong man. He felt like he could make it. And God broke him. He realized that he could not save himself. Because he kept failing. So one, one year after New Year's Eve, he, he got so drunk that he blacked out. And after years of battling with alcoholism, he usually knew when to quit before that happened. And it happened again. And he just felt like, this is not getting better. This is getting worse. And I've put all of my energy into being able to stop this addiction. And I can't do it. So he said he's listening to a sermon by John Piper on John 3.16. And these are his words, not mine. Piper described how the verse, John 3.16... For God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Piper described how that verse contains some of the most important truths in all of scripture. And depending on how we respond to it, we will either spend eternity with God in heaven or apart from him forever in hell. And John Joseph said, I distinctly remember time slowing to a crawl as he heard those words. And he said he was repaying the last 10 years of his life, all of his lying, all of his drunkenness, and every terrible sin that he had committed against a holy God. And he said, I felt the crushing weight of it, and I knew I was going to hell. And then I knew I wasn't. He said the burden of his sin fell off of him in an instant, replaced with the knowledge that Jesus was Lord and God had saved him. That moment where he believed the message of John 3.16 led to an immediate and radical change as God removed his heart of stone and gave him a heart of flesh. He had set him free from his sin. John Joseph, strong military guy. I want to give you a couple others. Heath Adamson. Uh, Heath Adamson is crazy because his wife told him in middle school, I think God wants me to marry you. (laughs) That's crazy. She actually was a believer in middle school, and, and he said after they got married, he read her prayer journals and just saw the hand of God through his life that at all the craziest points, people had been praying for him and he didn't even know it because when she told him that, he was like, that's weird, and just ignored her. They were friends for a little while, but he also, he dabbled in drugs. He dabbled in the occult. Uh, he, He said he saw and experienced things. And sometimes when people go that far, they feel like, well, I can't be saved now because sometimes Satan will lie to you and say, when you do these things, Jesus will not forgive you. That's a lie. He saw chairs move without anybody moving them, and he knew spirits were real. And a friend invited him to church one day, and guys, this gives me such hope, because the church he attended was in the middle of an explosive argument, and a family was leaving. Like, that's the worst thing. Like, I can just imagine being the pastor, like, not this week. Like, why are you here now? People stood up and were slandering and saying terrible things. He said at the end of that divisive meeting, a guy got up and said, You know what? We're here because Jesus is the Savior who died for our sins and rose from the dead. And I don't know, if maybe, maybe there's somebody here that doesn't believe that. And if there's anybody here who doesn't believe that, I just want to invite you to pray and be saved. And he was! And then later he married the girl, Heath Adamson. Maybe you feel like there's no hope because you've gone too far. Heath Adamson would say, man, I went that far and Jesus forgave me. I've got two others that I have to mention. Mary Poplin. Mary Poplin. Uh, she was a professor, smart, brilliant woman. She dabbled in, in New Age. She, she loved to think of herself. She says, it's, uh, Shirley, Shirley uh, not Temple, uh, Shirley MacLaine, the, the lady that likes to dance on the beach, right? Like she's super free. She's like, I love to think of myself that way. And she dabbled in meditation and, and she had this unshakable dream. She wasn't seeking Jesus at all. But she described it this way. She said, in 1992, she remembered in this dream 
being in a long line of people, and she couldn't see the beginning or the end of the line, said they were dressed in gray robes. It's a really vivid dream. And they were marching ahead slowly. And then suddenly, she said, they reached an area where there was this yellow light that was just emerging. And as they approached it, they saw the scene of the Last Supper. And she had some image of the Last Supper painting by, by da Vinci. And so she's like, oh, that's, that's Jesus up there. Those are the apostles, and she, she doesn't tell but, but it's live. It's not a painting. So the disciples were eating and drinking and talking to one another. But she said Jesus was not at the table with them, but he was standing up ahead, and they were in a reception line. And she said when she got to Jesus, she thought of herself as a pure and good person seeking, the, seeking whatever was true, but not Jesus. And when she got up to Jesus, Looked into his eyes. She said, I grasped immediately with every cell in my body. I was filled with filth and weeping. She said she fell at his feet. And then this is the, this is the craziest part. She said he reached over and touched her shoulders. And she felt perfect peace. She wasn't destroyed. She wasn't cast away. Jesus healed her. So the next morning, she called the most spiritual person she knew and said, what do I do? Somebody was 120 miles away. She started reading Proverbs and Psalms. And she liked Proverbs because it had an Eastern wisdom flavor to it. But then she read a Psalm that had this verse that disturbed her so much. And all of a sudden, she experienced and she realized that evil is real and that there are consequences for evil. And she said the scales fell off her eyes and she finally confessed that she needed the Jesus that she had seen in her dream and she believed and she was saved. You can read her testimony in Christianity today. Here's the last one, and I hope it helps. Lisa Brockman. Lisa Brockman, in many ways... I think this is the most important testimony I'm going to share with you because it's a little boring. Lisa Brockman grew up as a Mormon. And you can say, like, she's a good moral person, right? In many ways, like, if you're kind of comparing, like, rules of different religions, Mormons are stricter than we are. Like, if they're a strict Mormon, you can't even have coffee. I'm so glad that Mormonism is not true. She believed that she would get to go to celestial heaven by following all the rules of Mormonism and being married in the Mormon temple. That was her goal. But the problem was she started dating an evangelical Christian. And he was like, I'm not doing that. And she was like, okay, so I need to convert him. And he was like, okay, so I need to convert her. So she started reading the Bible. And he started asking her questions like, hey, how do you know that, that Mormonism is true? And she said, I'd never answered that question except to say, I have a feeling in my chest. Which is really common. That, that's how you're, like, your, your inner self confirms the truth of Mormonism. And he said, that's ridiculous. I have feelings all the time. It doesn't mean anything about whether something is true. And so he started asking her, you know, like the, the Book of Mormon describes Native Americans running around on chariots. There are no chariots anywhere in the archaeological record 
anywhere in North or South America. They didn't have wheels. And the Book of Mormon describes them using currency, like metal currency, and, and there was no thing like that. And so historically, the Book of Mormon is, is not true. But then you look at the Old Testament, and it describes people and places and events that are verifiable through archaeology. And it's not just a collection of stories, but it's historically true. And it's night and day. And so she's wrestling with this. And more than anything, she begins to wrestle with, is Jesus God? That's the biggest theological difference between Christianity and every other religion. Every other religion, most of them will say, Jesus is a good teacher. Man, he has some good things to say. Not God. Christianity says he is the son of the father, eternal, equal in glory, equal in essence, worthy of worship. And so she's wrestling with this. My boyfriend that I want to marry, but he won't become a Mormon, believes that Jesus is God, and I don't. She said after five months of research and the knowledge that she had not been the perfect Mormon that she tried to be, after five months of research, she was wrestling with this idea of a Trinitarian God. And she said one day, as she sat in bed conflicted, God drew near to her in a vision. And she saw a sea of people around Jesus who sat on a throne. Okay, there's, there's only one throne in heaven. She sees Jesus on it. And these people are bowing before him, singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And as they worshipped in this dream, she said she fell to her face and wept. And friends, I want to leave you with that story in particular because it's very much like Paul's story. Paul was a religious man. He kept the rules. He did the things. But he had rejected Jesus until Jesus opened his eyes. And Lisa, somebody alive today, did the exact same thing. And Jesus had mercy on her and opened her eyes and she believed and she was saved. And so I want to say to you, if I could look in your eyes, I'd look in the eyes of every person here. Do you have a story like that? Have you received the mercy of God? Do you know that your sins are forgiven? Do you believe that Jesus paid for them on the cross and that he rose from the dead and that he will give you eternal life? Not because you're good, but precisely because you're not. Friends, this is the message of mercy that is the core of our ministry and of every Christian church. The mercy is this, that I am a sinner and I don't deserve God's favor. I don't deserve his blessings. I need mercy and God has it abundantly and will give it to anyone who asks. So have you ever asked? Have you asked for his mercy? Do you have a story of God's mercy that leads you to praise? If you do, I want to encourage you. Let's be faithful to proclaim it. I'm looking out at a couple of people here, and, and some of us are a little older than others. Some of us are a little younger. If you're, if you're on the older side, do, do your grandkids know your story, how you received mercy? Your story could be a great encouragement to them. Let's be faithful. When you come in with a heavy heart, 
to remember the mercy that God gave you and to let that mercy lead you to praise the way it led Paul to praise in this passage. Let's be faithful to proclaim mercy, to celebrate mercy. And friends, if, you, if there's anyone here, or if you're watching online, if there's anyone here that has never claimed that mercy, claim it today. Would you pray with me? Our Father, to the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. We want to honor you. Lord, I pray that all of us would cast ourselves at the feet of Jesus in worship, whether it's for the first time or the hundredth time or the ten thousandth time, that we would remember your grace and forgiveness. And that you, like you did for the Apostle Paul, would fill us not only with faith and belief, but would fill us with your love. Father, overwhelm us with your great love for us. Let us know with full assurance that you are the Savior and that we are saved. We pray this in Jesus' name.